The scripture reading this morning will be taken from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. If you'd like to look in your pew Bibles, it'll be page 907 and 908. 907, 908. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glories, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whoever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, this shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will, and on your hands, they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting, again, we welcome you. It's good to have you this morning. We hope that uh, we can get to know you. And uh, you being here is encouragement to us, and we'd like to be an encouragement to you. In the moral compass, Bennett tells the story of Hans, who was a little shepherd boy. As he was out caring for a sheep one day, a hunter rode out of the woods and began to ask directions for the nearest village. Hans explained that it wasn't easy to get to. It was six miles and it was only a shepherd's trail and he would easily get lost and would never find the way without help. He asked him if, the hunter asked him if he would show him the way. He said, I can. If I left, the sheep would be eaten by wolves. The hunter said, you don't realize I can pay you for any sheep that you'll lose. And besides that, I'll give you enough money that it'll be more than a year of your salary. No, I couldn't do that, he replied. The little shepherd boy said, these sheep have been placed in my care. And if something happened to them, the master would have right to blame me. I can't do that. Well then, replied the hunter... Would you go find someone that would serve as a guide to take me back? I'll watch your sheep. No, replied the shepherd boy. You see, the sheep don't know your name. And, and, and the hunter interrupted the long pause. He said, and you don't trust me, do you? He said, no, sir. You've already tried to get me to violate my commitment to my master. How do I know that you won't violate your word to me? The hunter laughed. He said, you're a wise young man. 
And as they discussed that, other men rode out of the woods and began talking to the man. And in this conversation, Hans found out he'd been talking to the prince. He became very nervous. What would the prince do to a young man that wouldn't honor his request? Instead, he began to praise this young man before the others. A few weeks later, word was sent for him to come to the palace. As he arranged someone to care for the sheep through the master for a temporary basis, he went to that palace. And as he was praised there for being a man of such integrity, the prince explained, I want people like you to surround me in my life. I want you to leave the sheep and I want you to come and spend the rest of your life working in the palace. Hans was honored, but you know his answer. His answer was, let me go back. Let me serve my time with my master until he can find someone to replace me. And then I'd be glad and honored to come back and to serve you. Now, is that just an emotional, touchy-feely, heartwarming story? Or is there something deeper in that story that is of real value? I think all of us can pick out what is of real value in that story. We see a young man who had a rock-solid commitment and integrity in his life. When we think of things in life that are rock solid, that are good, we admire that. Even if at times we ourselves might not be that way ourselves as the hunter, the prince himself. But yet he saw it in others and he appreciated it. This morning I want to ask you, do you live a rock solid life or are you just wafering and waffling around? You know, when we think of the term rock, We see throughout time that this has been a phrase that is described, that which is solid. Prudential Financial has had one of the greatest marketing schemes using the Rock of Gibraltar. There on the southern, southwestern tip of Europe, it's an icon for security, for strength. One of the greatest advertising campaigns in modern day media was when Chevrolet offered like a rock. First, they used it for all of their Chevrolet products, finally dropping it and using it for years more for their pickups. Like a rock. What does it say? We admire someone and we say, oh, they're solid as a rock. They're tough as a rock. It's the idea of genuine, of thoroughbred strength. It's the idea of something that is there today and it'll be there tomorrow. Friends, as we think about this, I want to ask you, not just this morning, but I want to ask you throughout the month of April, will you give prayerful study and consideration to the topic, is your faith like a rock? Are you living rock solid in your life? Now, as we consider this, as interesting as it is, we're not going to study you. This month, we're going to study Jesus. And we're going to see occasions when He stood like a rock. And usually when either the term or literally a rock was involved in that aspect of his life. Today we're going to look at some deadly rocks. We're going to look at the text that is just read where Satan at a tempting time showed Jesus a rock. And it would have been so tempting for him to take that stone and make it into a delicious piece of bread. But he couldn't. He wouldn't. Not that he didn't have the power but because that wasn't the type of man that he was. He was a rock-solid man in his life and his integrity to God. And so as we consider this, 
Think with me again, the text has been so capably read for us. Notice as it begins, we see Jesus living in two environments. You see there in verse 1, when it says at the end of the verse that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, you may know or remember, if not, it would help you to know this. Jesus had just shortly before this been baptized. This was the beginning of his public ministry. And here it says the Spirit led him. So he's living a life in the Spirit. But he also has another environment in which he's being led toward. And it's an environment of the wilderness. Now, as we consider the two environments that Jesus lived in, it's interesting to note that how Matthew and Luke point out the fact that Jesus was led by the Spirit. That points out the fact, just as you and I today can be led by the Spirit, it means that we are submitting our will to that of the Holy Spirit. It's that of us being mastery of the Spirit. It's us being obedient to the Spirit. And so here we see Jesus, even though upon His baptism, the Spirit came upon Him in the form of a dove, He was deciding each day if He would be led by the Spirit. But Mark notes something interesting in his very same account of this. Mark says that He was driven by the Spirit. Why do you think Mark points that out? Why does he use that strong word that in Matthew, the seventh chapter, you remember when he talked about the individual that had a beam in his eye and he looked over at his brother that had a moat in his eye and he said, oh, before you pluck out the moat out of your brother's eye, you ought to cast out the beam out of your own eye. That word for pluck out and cast out is the very same word that Mark uses here to drive. In other words, it is the idea of somewhat by force. Now, wait a minute. Do you think the Holy Spirit forced Jesus into that wilderness and He did not have a choice? Do you think the Holy Spirit will ever force you to do something and you not have a choice? No. We never see any example of that in the Scriptures, in the life of Jesus or in the life of individuals. Then why did He use the word to drive? See if this makes sense to you. A lot of us, probably because of the way we were brought up, when it comes to obeying God, probably 50 or 60% of His will is easy for us. It's things that we would say, well, you know, I'd want to do that whether I was a Christian or not. Well, what about another 20 or 30 percent? It may be things that we say, you know, if I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't do that. But I'm very uh, satisfied to do that. It's easier for me to do that. I, I appreciate doing that in my life as a Christian. As a matter of fact, I enjoy doing those things. I enjoy that sacrifice. I enjoy that commitment. It's rewarding. It's satisfying. But let me ask you something, brethren. What about, and and there's nothing magical about this formula, but what about that last 5% or that last 10%? What about that last percentage where you say, I don't want to do that. I know it's God's will, but I don't want to go there. I don't want to obey that. I don't want to submit to that. Friends, that's the real question. That's the picture then when you and I obey, even when we do not want to. That's being driven by the Spirit. That's where we are literally allowing the Holy Spirit to have His way in our life 
when if it weren't for our submission, we would have never done that. I really believe that what Mark is revealing to us by inspiration is this fact. If Jesus had his own choice about the matter, he would have never gone into that wilderness. He only went into that wilderness because he was a man that was led by the Spirit and the Spirit was driving him into that wilderness. Now when you and I read just this quick glimpse here of what happened, we're only catching one occasion here. You remember he was in that wilderness for 40 days. He was in that wilderness fasting and praying for 40 days. And Mark tells us that while he was in that wilderness, he was being tempted all of those 40 days. Don't conjure up in your mind some kind of thing that it was a quiet and peaceful time of solitude and that that he had just a wonderful vacation for 40 days fasting. And then at the end, some way Satan just popped up. No, this was probably some of the hardest days that Jesus ever faced on this earth with probably the exception of the last few before He was crucified and as He was crucified. So we see Jesus living in two environments. He's living in the world, the wilderness. But He's not of the world. He's living a life that's led by the Spirit. Now just for a few minutes, look with me if you will to these three attempts where... In a sense, Satan was throwing rocks at Jesus. Satan was trying to knock Jesus off his course to to keep him from living a life that was a rock-solid life. And as we look at verse 3 and 4, we see the first attempt where he tried to get him to take a stone and make it into bread. Now, that's not a stretch, is it? Because when you think about it, the first miracle that we see Jesus performing, he was taking water and making it into wine. And we also know from later on that he was able to take just a few loaves of bread and make enough bread for 5,000 people. And so the idea that he could and possibly even would take a stone and make it into a delicious piece of bread, that's not unthinkable. Now notice the reason that would be tempting. Not only did he have the power to do that, but isn't it necessary to eat in order to survive? You see, he's even being tempted to do something that sooner or later, it's going to be necessary for him to eat. Because after all, he hasn't eaten in 40 days. I have an idea. Let's fast for the rest of the day. Whatever you thought about eating for lunch, just cancel that. Decide praying instead. Go ahead and cancel supper also. For some, say, well, that's hard to think about. Well, I tell you what, while we're at it, let's just fast tomorrow also. I tell you what, let's come together Wednesday night. Nobody eat anything until Wednesday night and we'll discuss our prayer life. Let's just go ahead and wait till next Sunday. Nobody eat anything until Sunday morning. How hungry would you be? How delicious would a piece of bread sound? What about if the last time you ate was around February the 18th? Try to let that sink in. What about if the last time you ate was February 18th and you have the power to perform miracles and Satan comes up to you and says, Jesus, 
if you're the Son of God. Change this into bread. How tempting would that be? And Jesus' answer is so powerful for you and I today. Man shall not live by bread alone. You see there his answer is, Satan, the physical is never enough. That's a bold statement from a man that hasn't eaten in 40 days and he's thinking about food and he says, let me tell you something. I'd give up anything physical before I would give up anything in my spiritual relationship with God. Let that sink in. I'd give up anything physical before I would give up my spiritual relationship with God. Would you give up food from now to the time you die before you'd give up your relationship with God? How many times do we say, well, if I just have the necessities, that's all I need in life. Speaking about physical necessities, no, that's not all we need. Well, I tell you what, if I could just have that next promotion, my life would would be everything that I want it to be. If I could have that house, that car, if I could have that recognition, if I could have somebody to admire me, somebody to encourage me. If I just had that, I'd have what I need in life. No. You name anything on this earth that is related to the physical. And you take Jesus, the bread of life, out of the equation. And we don't have what we need. We can't survive a life that is rock solid without Jesus Christ. Now notice he adds to that, but we live by every word of God. Why do you think he wouldn't give in one time to Satan? Obviously, it's because he believed that he ought to obey everything, every time. That God asked. You remember a while ago when we were talking about being led and even driven by the Spirit? You know that, that 50 or 60% of God's will that we might look at and say, oh, that's pretty easy. That maybe that 20, 25, 30% that we say, that's, that's tougher, but, but I'm glad to do it. But what about that last 5%? What about that last 10% where it takes a lot of sacrifice because it's totally against our fleshly nature? Are we willing to obey and to live by every word of God? Are we satisfied saying, you know, I live close enough to God that everybody thinks I'm faithful. Maybe I've convinced myself I'm faithful. And the reality is, I can't say I live by every word. Because there's some of that part down there at the end where I refuse to be driven by the Spirit. Jesus wouldn't be conquered by that rock. Now, let's look at the next two, hopefully a little quicker, but but to see this picture of what Satan was putting Jesus through the day that in a symbolic way he was throwing rocks at Jesus, trying to set him off his course. Look, if you will, back in the ninth 
in, in verse 5 of Luke, the fourth chapter, he, he takes him up. You see there, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in verse 5 in a moment's time. So imagine him showing him Rome and, and Greece and Egypt and uh, just all of the kingdoms at that moment. And he says to him in 6, look towards the middle, he says, For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. And so it's with this promise they saying to Jesus, Now I can deliver it to you. You know, Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. Here, he tells a partial truth at the beginning, and then he tells a lie at the end. You see, when he said, these kingdoms have been delivered to me, the kingdoms had been delivered to him, because every one of us has free will. You see, Satan can't take anyone into his kingdom. He can only accept them once they are delivered. Well, who delivers us to Satan? We deliver ourselves to Satan. Whenever we decide to disobey God, we naturally deliver ourselves to another master. When I say, no, Lord, I don't want you to be my master, we have delivered ourselves to Satan. And so, yes, these kingdoms have been delivered to Satan. But notice that last part in verse 6 where he says, and I give it to whomever I wish. Satan can't give someone back to the Father. Think about that for a moment. Satan can't take someone that has rebelled against God and say, now God, they don't want to serve you, but I'm going to make them serve you. I'm giving them back to you and now they have to serve you. Friends, he doesn't have that kind of power. This ought to be somewhat comforting. As much power as Satan has, he doesn't have the power to make you serve him and he doesn't have the power to make you go back to God. That's our choice. God gives us the choice of our masters. And so here as He shows Him all the kingdoms, think how tempting that would be. Now I have said, and I've heard it said many times, if Jesus would have accepted this, the temptation would have been because perhaps He would have thought, I wouldn't have to die on the cross if this was the case. All these kingdoms are going to be given to me. So now I'll be able to escape that difficult, painful, treacherous death. But you know what? The reality is, if Satan were telling the truth, it'd be far better. Because even when Jesus died on the cross, there are so many that still do not accept Him as a Savior. You see, what Satan was offering is, I'll give you everybody. So you talk about a pie in the sky. You talk about something that... Obviously, you'd say, that seems too good to be true. Well, Jesus sees through the lies. And it's in that that he brings up in verse 8 something that Satan had not yet brought up. You see, he had only wanted Jesus to fall down and worship him. But when he talked about worship, Jesus said in verse 8, Get behind me, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. You see, he brings up the fact of, listen here, Satan... Life is about serving and worshiping God. And listen, I don't serve you, Satan, so you can forget about the thought that I'm going to fall down and worship you. I do serve the Father, and so I'm going to serve and worship the Father. You know, in John 4, when Jesus spoke about worship, He talked about that the Father is seeking true worshipers. Have you ever thought, what is a true worshiper? The idea is true is genuine. A genuine worshiper is someone that has lived their life through the week serving God. And they come in on Sunday with a heart that is overflowing for love 
And it is in worship of spirit and in truth that they pour out that heart of love that has been serving God all week. That's a true worshiper. Now let's notice this third one. Notice as we go to verse 9. He points out that, that Jesus was taken by Satan to the pinnacle of the temple. And then he says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then he quotes from Psalms 91. Now, as we go to this next slide, I want you to notice that what is in Luke 4 of what Satan quoted, keep in mind, he's trying to play Jesus' game now. Each time Jesus has been overcoming temptation by saying, it is written, that is so powerful. If you and I are going to overcome temptation in our life, we're going to have to know the truth. The truth is the Word of God. We're going to have to have the Word of God in our mind to be able to use it. I'm not talking about just memorizing it. I'm talking about knowing what it teaches, knowing how it is to be used. It'd be one thing for somebody to say, hey, here's a rifle. I want you to know your weapon so that you can protect yourself. And someone becomes so accustomed to their rifle, they could tell you every part, the manufacturer, etc., but then they didn't know how to use it. Well, when we memorize Scripture, but yet we don't know how to use it, we don't know what it's teaching, we really haven't accomplished anything. And so Jesus knew the Scripture, and He knew how to use it. But now Satan tries to use the Scripture. And I want you to notice on this screen, there is a phrase that Satan left out. And it's, it's a key principle phrase in this. You see, if you're reading there in Psalms 91 and 11, notice it says, For He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you. Now, He left out this phrase. In all your ways, in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, if you look over at Psalms 91, it's real clear that this whole passage is about the psalmist finding refuge and safety as he lives his life in the way of God. I want to read verse 1 to you. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I want to read verse 9 to you, just two verses before this. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall upon you. Do you see what the context is in Psalms 91? The context is you've made your home with God. You are safe because you have hid your life in the will of God. Now it's in that setting that he says, the angels will take care of you. Notice Satan completely left out the phrase that dealt with the way in which we live. As a matter of fact, some of the older translations, instead of it saying your way, says thy way. See, it's the idea that when we live according to God's way, we have God's protection. Jesus knew that to submit to Satan at this time would never bring the protection of God. Now, as we look back at the end of verse 12, Jesus' answer, and this is back in Luke 4, look at Jesus' answer. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Trust does not trick in order to find trustworthiness. If you and I really trust each other, we don't have to test and trick each other to find out if we really trust each other. Now, some humans, we can't trust. And so to be wise, we have to test them. 
And we may find out when we test them that they're not trustworthy. But friends, the question for me and for you is do we trust God? Or do you feel like you need to test God? God, I tell you what, if if you're really a great God, I want to see a sign. Oh, so you, you don't know if God's a great God unless you put Him on trial? And then who deemed you to be the great judge worthy of saying whether or not the Almighty is trustworthy on your kangaroo court as you sat on the bench? You see how ridiculous that is? I'm little old me, and I'm going to put God on trial, and I'm going to decide if He can be trusted? God, I don't know if I can trust my life to you. Friends, if that's the case, I will never have a rock-solid life. If we can't trust God, we definitely can't trust ourselves. Our life is in shambles. We've seen two environments and we've seen three attempts. Let's close with an invitation as we think about one application. And that that application is to you. And it's to me. It's to take this lesson and think about it and put it in our life. And as we think about this, I want you to think, do you have the environment of the Spirit? Are you being led by the Spirit even to the point that you could say, I'll be driven by the Spirit. I'll give all to Jesus Christ. Can we say that, We have more than earthly things. Yes, we all have some earthly possessions. But what really matters the most is my relationship with God. Can we say that we worship God and not only that, but all through the week we serve God by the way we live, by the people that we are. Can we say finally, I trust God. I don't have to put Him on trial. I don't have to understand why He answers some prayers yes and some prayers no. I trust God. Friends, those are a few ingredients of living a rock-solid life. We learn from the one who came to this earth and lived that perfect life. This morning, let's make sure that we all leave here, not because of our own wisdom so rock-solid, but because of our submission to the Almighty, that we have a rock-solid faith. If you've never been baptized into Christ for the mission of your sins... Are you a believer, willing to repent of sins, confess before men that Jesus is the Son of God? Won't you be baptized into Christ? That's the rock. Baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. Come up out of the water to live a life that's focused, a life that's faithful, a life that's solid. Maybe you have been baptized and you evaluate your life and you recognize something's not as solid as what God would have it to be. Thank God He forgives us the sins and He gives us the opportunity to start again. If we can help you.